Station 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Datebook Podcast. I'm Peter Hartlop, pop culture critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, here with Mick LaSalle for Movies with Mick LaSalle. Welcome, Mick. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, I, I want to go back to Elton John. Sure. Yeah, you're going to talk about a couple new movies this week, but yeah. you got a lot of feedback, I know, on Elton yes. John. You disliked Rocket Man. Yes. A lot of other people liked it. And you wrote that excellent essay, personal essay, yeah. about Elton John and what he meant to you in the 70s. Yes. What was your feedback like on that? Feedback was really good. I, I got uh, uh, one woman wrote to me, Dear Hottie from Yesteryear. <laughs> that was my favorite. Uh, you included the photo, a photo <laughs> the of yourself. Yeah, when yeah. I was 17. Yeah. Um, it, it was entirely positive for the, for the article. It was totally positive because it was all people who were around in the 70s, including uh, a backup singer for Elton John, who said that he saw the movie and he couldn't believe it. He thought the movie was terrible. And he, and he just didn't understand why. He said he could have written my review. And I also, reading the piece, I wanted to hear more from you about Elton John. So this is kind of like a lightning round. Okay, sure. Could you tell me your favorite Elton John song, favorite Elton John album, and the last time you saw him in concert? Okay, favorite Elton John song is Funeral for a Friend, Love Lives Bleeding, which absolutely is my favorite. Uh, let's see, a favorite album would be Goodbye Yellow Rick Road. And last time I saw him in concert was in 1976. So I saw him in 74, then I saw him in 76, and that was enough. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, it was like the magic was kind of gone. Well, Taryn Egerton came in here and uh, yeah. I was totally scared because I was wondering if he had read your review. At one point he looked down at his phone and I'm like, oh no, is he reading mixed review? Oh, really? <laughs> it worked out fine. He was, he was charming. Great. Right. Uh, a lot to cover today. You talk about Late Night, Men in Black International, uh, 5B, a documentary. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Liba Hertz returns. Datebook Podcast. Thanks for listening. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, hello, everybody. This is Mick LaSalle, and welcome to another dramatic reading from Mick LaSalle. No, we're not doing that. I've, you know, I've been listening to, I, I'm listening to our old podcast, Leba, and, uh, and, and as a result, I just said the old uh, sign-in. I guess this is Movies with Mick LaSalle, and I am here with my former editor, Hi, Liba. Hi, everybody. And I'm also the influencer, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, Liba Hertz is now officially an influencer, which or is a good Or influenza, depending on your point of view. You know, it's funny that you should say influenza, <laughs> because, you know, we were here uh, two weeks ago, and you said that you had a cold. And then, and then after I said, oh, no, you have a cold, you said, 
but no, it's probably an allergy. And I'm wondering how that worked out for you. But did it turn out to be a cold? No, or? it was allergies. It was? It was totally okay. allergies. Because, I never no, got physically ill. Because you know, because it, it's a wild coincidence, because yeah. I caught an allergy about two days later, <laughs> and I was sick See, for a full week. So you know what? That's true, because the incubation period would be longer for a cold. It would be? Yeah. Okay, but it was definitely but allergies, because, I mean, I could just, you could oh, just, man. when you have a cold, you, everything your whole body is a disaster. This was yeah, just, yeah, that was in, yeah. the, in the cough. It was definitely allergies. But yeah. I do think I got heat stroke. So heat stroke okay. yesterday. So I actually took Benadryl because everything was swollen. I was wow, itching. Benadryl, and that did the trick. I took I took well, I said that well. Yeah, the Benadryl. You, by the way, all the allergy medication worked better than all the predicted cold medication I was trying. So yeah. either way. All right. Okay. Well, then it's just purely coincidental that uh, you were coughing all over me, and I got sick about three days later. All right. Well, that's good to know. Uh, I'm still coughing, but <laughs> you know, yeah, Benadryl. Benadryl is really good. Benadryl is a good thing to review movies on. You know, that was mm-hmm. like before Claritin and before Zyrtec mm-hmm. and all that stuff and Allegra. There was Benadryl, and uh, a doctor prescribed it. You know, it's, of course, it's over the counter. But I started taking Benadryls and giving everything a little man sleeping for the next <laughs> week because I would sit there and fall asleep at every movie. And I didn't know that it was because of the Benadryl. And the only reason why I found out is because Elliot Levine at the Roxy said to me, he, he, I, I saw one of his movies. He said, what would you think of it? And because I know Elliot, I said, oh, well, that thing sucked. It put me to sleep. He said, you're crazy. Not only are you crazy, but... This is a movie that you would like. I know you would like it. I know you would like it. And and so he, he gave me a um, a, a DVD of it. And and around that time, I found out about Benadryl of it. Um, what was uh, the movie? I don't remember. It was some you know, independent thing. No, it wasn't. It wasn't like a masterpiece, but it was a solidly Schindler's List. You know, you know, it was it was one of those like like weird independent movies that if it hits you wrong, it's bad. But if you just watch it in in the right frame mm-hmm. of mind, it's really good. And so I was just anyway, but. We have a week of movies. We haven't been, uh, let's say, we have two weeks worth of movies. Let's start on this week. And, Lee, what do you want to do? You want to start big, go small? Um, wanna, let's go with Late Night since we both night. saw the movie. Late Night's a pretty good movie. Uh, it's with uh, Mindy, Mindy Cowling and uh, with Emma Thompson. I think the best thing to say about th- this movie, and it's not, it's not a small thing, is that it's the best role that Emma Thompson's had in at least five years, and that's counting P.L. Travers in that movie about uh, Mary Poppins. Re- not Which Mary was Tyler. good, Saving Mr. Banks. Saving Mr. Banks. That was a good movie. She was, a, she was good in it. And she was good in it, but I like her better in, in this because she gets to be funny, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nasty funny. And I also like the complexity of her character because the um, person she plays, she's a talk show host who is, uh, her career is, is kind of, well, she's about to get canceled after 28 years. And I think she's a complex figure because she is, for some reason, sympathetic. And I think it's because it's Emma Thompson. There's something nice about her, even when she's being nasty. You get the feeling that there's a human being in there. But at the same time, her behavior is fairly appalling. I mean, she's kind of sadistic with her staff. She's she's And with her husband. And, and, well, she's not sadistic with the husband. She's not good but, to the husband. Who's John Lithgow, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So... I would say that it, it that that part of the movie is covered, and then the Mindy Kaling, Kaling. I, I think it's Mindy Kaling. I okay. I I think that that she's kind of uh, she's less interesting in the movie, and it's and, and that's kind of curious because she wrote the role herself. But I, I, I think that happens. I, I liked her a lot in the movie. Matter of fact, I was just thinking when you were talking, is this romantic thing that goes on in there, and I have to give him credit. There, I'm not going to give away. There's a spoiler in there, but there's no copping out on it. 
You know, yeah. they make it realistic. They make it true. There's no like, you know, happy ending or, or sad ending. I yeah. just felt it was a, a, it was life lessons are being learned and without copying out. Yeah, I found that certain things about the movie I didn't like. I, I mean, I, but they're minor. But they added up to mm-hmm. they added up to like a two and a half star thing. First off, it, in a way, part of it is like it's a backstage look at uh, the TV business, but it doesn't feel like a backstage look because it's it's it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense. She's she's supposed to be uh, a late night host who is wants to be serious. So I guess she's sort of like um, I, I don't know. She's like Dick Cavett or something, or she's like. David Frost, and of course she wouldn't be on for 28 years if she was like those people because that's too intellectual. But also she's supposed to be. I think like, Cavett, if he didn't quit, might still be around. No, Cavett didn't quit. I mean, Was ca- he no, no, you, yeah, yeah. Show got canceled, then he came back on PBS. Yeah. Um, and and then then you look and say, well, then then well, then what happens? Well, who does she have as her staff? And you would think that her staff would be kind of uh, you know tweedy sort of middle-aged or older guys but instead she it's just a bunch of young uh, white men who are almost fresh out of college except for well not fresh That's out of college but all about 30. there's like one middle-aged but guy and then three. one guy who's about 34 yeah. and, and then there's and then there's the I guess the mad the station manager played by the great great Dennis O'Hare yeah uh, so it, I it just didn't add up for me and then Big, big fault of it. You know, Mindy Cowling is supposed to be like the, the person who saves her career, right? Well, she doesn't write her a good joke. At one point she says, what's, what's, you know, what's wrong with me or something? And she diagnoses a problem as that she's too white and she's too old. Well, that's great. Yeah, so she's supposed to change that. And then she comes up with something uh, and she writes her a, a bit. Uh, doesn't write her a bit like an ongoing series, which is like the most unfunny thing on earth. There's nothing funny. So you would think that this is a movie about uh, somebody who's really funny, goes to work for a late night host, and basically the idea is it's going to save her career or would save her career if she was listened to. And Emma Thompson's monologues are just as bad in the beginning of the movie as at the end. She, Mindy does not write her, or the name of the character that she's playing, does not write her a single funny joke in the entire movie. I, I can't remember that part, but I'm, the thing she got hired, she didn't get hired to write her good jokes. She got hired because it was a forced diversity issue. Yes, and but the so idea she didn't is, care yeah, who okay. the guy hired. Yeah, that's he, right. he purposely hired her because she had really zero experience, which is part of the joke of the whole thing. She was like working at a factory and the comic at the factory and talk about bad jokes. Those were intentionally written bad jokes yeah. for the movie. So the whole thing was for her to be an interference point and Emma Thompson just used her to get back at the other guys. And in her own mind, that's a possible Yeah, but what's the course. next thing? The next step is, but then she proves to be good. Yeah. Okay, but, but she doesn't. Yeah. I mean, she she does in the construction of the movie where you, it's being, you know, forced through that funnel as you're watching yeah. it. But if you actually look at what the the, the change that she exerts on the show, she, she doesn't write her anything funny. I thought she did. No, I she, don't remember. I, I'm trying to remember. She, I remember. she writes her a, an abortion joke. Uh, which is like middling. It's not particularly funny. It's just supposed to be shocking that she did an mm-hmm. abortion joke, which in itself is pretty amazing that that's considered shocking that she's a late night host and she makes a joke about abortion. That's you know that's not exactly that big oh, a deal. Oddly enough, <laughs> and then she comes up with this, a, 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 um, a a running bit called White Savior, which is I mean colossally unfunny. Mm-hmm. Funny where if there's some black people 
who are trying to hail a cab. Emma Thompson shows up, hails a cab for them, and that becomes part of the comic bit, White Savior. I mean, that is, like, not funny to anybody. Uh, and that was supposed to be an ongoing series that this genius young screenwriter wrote for her. So if, if, you, if, you, if, if you look at it just a little bit coldly, what you feel is a movie that has a really good character in Emma Thompson. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, an artificial construction that is pulling, pushing the movie towards some kind of preordained destination. Now, you will like the destination, probably, and so you won't mind the movie, and it's a pretty good movie. Like, if I was writing in a star system, I'd give it two and a half stars. A lot of our little men ratings, they're either two and a half stars, which is, eh, it's all right, or... Two stars, which is uh, kind of sucks, but you know it's it, it it's but but between kind of sucks and uh, it's all right, it's kind of a, a, a you know big difference. But you know there is the word to describe both of them, meh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a meh, yeah. but it's a little better than it's, meh. It's, it's meh than plus. But you know, uh, but talk about the supporting cast. Look at who they had hired to replace her in the movie. Oh, that was funny, Ike okay. Barinholtz. That was really funny, and that's a good scene. But it's a good and scene. And talk about bad jokes. <laughs> yeah, he's making all these horrible, disgusting jokes, and then and then he becomes a guest, and he's yeah, and it's supposed to be he's the guy who's going to take over, and he she flips the script on him, and that is a very good scene. Yeah. There are good scenes yeah. in the movie, and there are good laughs in the movie, and the movie, despite a kind of sentimental construction actually is not sentimental in the moment to moment. Right, that's what so, I said. It just it's not, not bad. I just, I just didn't feel, one thing that always happens in these kind of movies is there's a cop-out, and it did not feel a cop-out in here. No, it just felt a kind of an artificial uh, thing. Anyway, so what else we have? Um, okay, so uh, we have um, uh, 5B. 5B. 5B is a documentary. Now, Lee, were you saying that this movie was around for a while? We were talking about Yeah, I think off. it might have been, uh, actually, I think it might have been PBS because, or, or at a film festival because we did a big a film festival, maybe. And um, you can tell the details. It's, it's, and I think, because I'm pretty sure I saw it. Because um, uh, I remember the interviews with all of the nurses. And was it called 5B? Yeah, it was called 5B. That's what yeah. I said to Why is yeah, this ring a bell? And I started reading the review and I went, it's an old story, you know. Yeah. And I know we did a huge feature on it. Yeah. I don't know if we reviewed it per se, if it was on TV, wow. um, because uh, that was the, the late David Regan would have probably have done it um, if he wanted to, but he had a very very hefty schedule, so it might have gone. But I, I just can't remember. But I know we did. If he didn't huge, have such a hefty schedule, he wouldn't huge, be the late huge David Regan. Feature Wigan. on this. Huge yeah. feature on this. Uh, well, anyway, it's a pretty good movie. Um, it's uh, no, it's better than a pretty good movie. I'm still thinking of the other movie. It's it's a very good documentary about an interesting period, of course, a tortured period in, in San Francisco mm-hmm. cultural history, and um, and also kind of an interesting movie in terms of American medical history. Mm-hmm. It's the first AIDS ward started in 1983. I'm not sure if they even had a name to AIDS at the point in 1983 when they did it. They may have still been calling it gay cancer. It began being called AIDS in the middle of 1983. Um, and of course, it started with just a trickle of people, and then it got to just horrible epidemic levels. And these nurses were absolutely on the front lines in a kind of what, what was a battle situation, battlefield conditions. And it was horrible because they could not help these people. They couldn't do anything for them. There was no treatment. And the only thing that they could offer was like physical comforts, like touching them and 
And of course, at this point, nobody knew how AIDS was transmitted. It just seemed like, like some kind of like, like a plague out of, out of medieval or early Renaissance times, you know. And um, and and these people really took a chance and started, you know, being hands-on, helping people and. And um, and there were dangers. There were real dangers. It wasn't necessarily. It wasn't obviously. It wasn't airborne as we know. But there were so many ways you can accidentally prick yourself with a needle. So many things that could happen. And the movie's about that. It's about the patients. It's mostly about the nurses. They all have that look in their eye like they've really been through something. They have seen things. They've seen things you don't really want to know about. Um, but you want to know them. Um, and it also deals with. The controversy at the time, there were nurses, of course, and, and I totally get it. There were nurses who did not want to be hands-on. There were nurses who wanted to go into these rooms in a hazmat suit, even after they were told that everything was okay in terms of, you know, it's transmitted through bodily fluids. But, hey, you know, you don't know whether to believe the authorities. The authorities said it was okay to go breathe the air in 9-11 20 years later, you know, the 9-11 at ground zero. You, hear, you know, you get told these things and then you find out 20 years later. So I totally understand why these people, but then a lot of them got like kind of straight up homophobic too. They, you know, you get, there's one doctor who's interviewed now saying, well, you know, if it wasn't AIDS, it would have been something else. That community was going to have a mass epidemic. No, I don't think so. Why? I don't, I don't see that. Um, there's no explanation for that. But anyway, uh, I think it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not a downer, it's, but it's a sober thing to watch but it's worth saying i had an experience that really touched on this a little bit where i actually saw this firsthand i had to have a test at kaiser and this was way back in the 80s i have some vision problems and they wanted to test something so i go over and i did have a cold (laughs) and i was coughing and they're all the nurses and the aides who are administering to me are all giving me these like very like very sad looks and i had what's going on and I had to take this test. I remember I had to keep perfectly still at one point, and I'm trying not to cough. Yeah. And again, they're just being very sad and very, very upset. And I go into a seat, and they go, please sit here. The doctor will see you shortly. So I nod my head, whatever. And I sit there, and the doctor calls me in, and he's very sad and very somber. And he says, oh, you were here for this illness. And I was like, excuse me? And he goes, most of the people having this test are HIV positive. Oh. And I said, his attitude just turned. It was like almost like the only person he was talking to that day who he knew was going to, you know, not have health issues of major proportions. Yeah, right. And I was like, really like, wow, that is some experience to sit through to see how these people. I mean, he wasn't mean or evil or nasty. No, They were just really sad. Sad. And, well, yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, then, you, you know, he just brightened happy. up when he saw when he saw my results because he realized he was not dealing with this this issue he had to be dealing with day in and day well, out. Well, well, there yeah. you go. Anyhow, it's uh, yeah, it was a pretty terrible time, and I I yeah. sort of missed it because I got here. I yeah, it was really really horrible. It was, yeah, it was, it, was bad. it was just one day you had a friend, next day they were gone. Literally at times, wow. that's how bad it could be. Um, okay, so what else do we have? Uh, we've got The Dead Don't Die. The Dead Don't Die. This is uh, Jim Jarmusch, um, and it's it's just, uh, it's really just worthless, worthless. There are things in it, as I say in the review, you, you could, there are good things in it, but you could put it all in a pile and set it on fire. It doesn't matter. There's, there's really no story you want to sit through. There's no reason to do this. It's a zombie movie, 
and it's sort of like like it's a takeoff on zombie movies which is a little bit ridiculous because that's like a parody of a parody there's no real reason there's no urgency behind it this it's just it's sort of like he had an idea and he has a really great rolodex or the equivalent of the whatever the computer whatever the uh, digital equivalent of a rolodex says and so he gets a lot of famous people and he gets you know bill murray and adam driver and chloe savigny and and um and then a lot of people, like you know, playing zombies, like Iggy Pop. I guess he was born to play a zombie. I think that's probably very good casting. He's probably been waiting his whole career to play a zombie. Uh, Carol Carol Kane plays a zombie. She always plays a zombie. Well, sort of. She plays. She kind of <laughs> plays. A, she was a young, pretty zombie in, in the seventies when when Woody Allen turned off Alison Porchnick. But uh, remember that? Why did I turn off Alison Porchnick? She played Alison Porchnick. Um, but it's 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 it has a good sense of humor, but it's not funny enough, and it's kind of disgusting to watch. And it, it suffers it suffers from just an incredible lack of vitality. There there is none, and and within about fifteen or twenty minutes of these kind of jokes, and and you laugh at first, and then you just realize, oh, he's he's got nothing. He's got nothing yeah. here, except he has us, the audience, being held hostage. Um, I this is something to never see, and it doesn't do Jim Jarmusch's reputation any good. I just it, it's a, yeah. a utterly worthless. And, piece and Jim of work. Jarmusch is is is, your, is is a yes or no kind of reputation. You either like yeah. him or you don't. Yeah, but sometimes I mean he made Broken Flowers yeah. with Bill Murray. That was really good. He Night on Earth. I thought it was touching. He made some funny movies uh, in the eighties. The, the he made that the, the Down by Law, and he made that other one with. They're going. I forgot it was Esther Ballant mm. and so and a guy named Edson. I think did they're he going coffees and cigarettes. Or something? Yeah, he did that. I didn't yeah, like that yeah. much, but he did that one where they they go on vacation to a place and all they do is sit in the motel mm. room, and that's all they do. Mm-hmm. Oh, Strange in Paradise. I actually remember that. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, anyway. no, I, and I do have to say that there is a really great zombie satire movie that was made years ago. Yeah, which one is it? Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Actually, there was one. There was a really fun one with uh, Bill Murray too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Zombie Land, or it was a really good takeoff on the Dracula. Those are the um, from the Shadows or the, the yeah. New Zealand group, the the Con- play the Concords people, which they have to oh, those guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. the Dracula. But Shaun of the Dead is part of that trilogy with um, Hot Cups, Hot Cups, and um, uh, what's the other the other one, uh, the End of the World or World's End. Okay. That that that, yeah. that 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 those are hilarious. All three yeah. of them. But Shaun of the Dead is like, and I don't like zombie movies. And somebody said you got to watch this, and I was on the floor rolling on that one. It is curious. There are people who really actively like zombies. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I've I've met them. They they talk about it, and, and you'd you'd be surprised who it is. You know, it's like they just like movies about zombies, and and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. But I just think it's a curious thing to like, just because I don't, I don't get the appeal. All they do is just sort of stagger around and you well, know, bite into people. The Walking Dead is like a huge. It's it's you know the equivalent of Game of Thrones. You know. Yeah. By the way, um, the movie makes a half-hearted attempt to like have a reason, so that the movie is sort of about um, about avarice causing. You know, the zombies are always our fault. The zombies show up, and it's because of consumerism. Right? Mm-hmm. And now, now it's about uh, be- damage to the environment. So it's something like that. But it does. It seems like mm. a a gestured place of a real purpose, like something mm. that's just 
Yeah, it does. It's not. It's not a serious movie, and it's not a yeah. unserious fun movie. Yeah, a small note. I want to correct myself. It was Hot Fuzz, not Hot Cops. Cops. Okay. Which the, uh, the British, the, the British movies. Yeah, like, don't uh, know. The guy, don't. what was his name? David Wright, the, the director who did uh, Baby Driver. Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. Okay, and uh, I I didn't see Shaft because I was. Uh, Oh, I was sick last week, but um, <laughs> dun, what do dun, we have? Dun, dun, yeah. dun. Okay, that's enough. I think I would have liked Shaft. I so, think. Well, yeah. I like him, so. Yeah, no, uh, that Shaft is a bad, mu- the, shut, shut my mouth. Yeah. Then there's and, uh, Men in Black. Men in Black, all right. Um, I like Tessa Thompson, so I didn't get to see it. Well, I, I, like, I like Tessa Thompson, and I also like uh, the other oh, guy, yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Yes, yes, What's I like not to him like? too. And I like them together in, in Ragnarok. Yeah. Yeah, but this movie kind of builds in a situation where they really can't have any any fun together. I'm not going to say chemistry because that's not important because I don't even know what that is. It's just an excuse for writing bad roles. They can't have any fun together. And the reason why they can't have any fun together is because in this movie, he there's something a little bit off about him. You don't know what it is, but there's something off about him. And then you find out what it is. But throughout the movie, he's just not... He's like operating on... 85% capacity or something. He's just... He lost th- his Avengers weight. <clears throat> no, there, there's just something There's something just a little bit wrong with him, which you know, comes out later and it's not that big a deal. Oh. And then Tessa Thompson has, is in a position of having to be diffident because she's on probation. She doesn't know anything. So she can't be the, her usual strident, fun self, and he can't be his usual competent, all... Pistons firing and at the same time being funny self, it's just a little bit off. Uh, so that relationship isn't fun. And, and if you watch this movie, you would not know that they could be fun together. Mm-hmm. But if you see Thor Ragnarok, which is really a good movie, yeah. that's a really fun movie. I was just making a joke because if you saw Endgame, remember what happens to him in Endgame with oh, the weight? Got, oh, he, oh, is that what you meant? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he lost that weight. <laughs> he lost. Oh, he lost we that we weight. Say, we won't say anything more. <gasps> oh no, no Avengers. No, he's fat in Avengers. That's well, okay. Oh, that's a bit of a spoiler. But no, it's yeah. the first five minutes of the okay. movie. <laughs> Besides, everybody who's Everybody who's really a they're actually giving up. The, they're actually giving out the spoilers now all over the place. Uh, oh, you mean like the uh, big one? The big one. The big one. The big one. The big one that you they're actually, actually flashing we had across a, the screen. The big really? one, the one that I got like you know axed out of on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I didn't cut even that give it out. Away. Really? <laughs> the uh, big one. They're flashing on the screen, and oh. then they go, "We won't get the spoiler," and then they say it. Oh, you know what we're gonna do? Let's have fun. Mm-hmm. Let's say it, but let's say it. We'll give everybody a warning. They could put their. Uh, People are driving right now. They're <laughs> hovering by their radio. They're going to get into a car accident because, no, we're not going to say it because they'll be trying to turn down the sounds. <laughs> we might, they might go off the road. It's funny. I, I, I think I, everybody knows by now anyway. Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess. There is a certain thing about these these major character deaths in movies. <laughs> I could say that much. These major character deaths in movies. Uh, actually, isn't Bruce Willis is dead yeah, already. Bruce, yeah, <laughs> but it, it just, it's just—it's like irresistible. I mean, you walk out of the movie and you want to say, uh, "Yeah, Han Solo. We're not going to be seeing him around no more." <laughs> Rosebud is a sled. Yeah. All right. So, um, but Men in Black is it, just lackluster. It's flat. It's not bad. Mm-hmm. It's not terrible. It's—it's—it's it's, it's, um, not as good as Men in Black Two. Uh, it's about as good as Men in Black 1, so if you like Men in Black, I find the whole Men in Black thing 
frankly, and I, I admit I may be too literal on, on this score, mm-hmm. but it's something about the Men in Black thing I don't like is that it's so bleak. I, I, I suppose you're not supposed to think of it this way, but it depicts a world that is right on the edge of finding out something so horrible. I mean, in every Men in Black movie, basically the world is about to get destroyed. And by accident, sort of, or by the intercession of these men in black, it doesn't get destroyed, but it came really close. There are horrible things that happen on the streets, so many you know, obvious things. So basically, people are going to find out that the world isn't safe and probably are going to find out the world is very close to being destroyed. So it reminds me of being like living in coastal Britain in around 1000 AD, about five, about five minutes before anybody found out about Vikings, right? So like they're happy, but then the Vikings, so it's like you know the Vikings are going to show up and you're watching them and it just makes you feel kind of sad. It makes me feel sad. I just, I happen to like the first one a lot and especially because I'm like a big, um, you know, um, fan of the guy who was Al Gore's roommate in college. Tiny Jones, yeah. Tiny Jones. I really was always a big fan. Of, even when he was on a soap opera, I was a big fan of him. I didn't like the first one. I liked the I second liked the one. I liked the first one a lot. Yeah, I liked the second one because I thought the second one was took everything that was good in the first mm-hmm. one, did it bigger, took everything I didn't like about the I second just, one, took, reason, got rid of I, it. I think Tommy Lee Jones, I don't know what it is about the guy. He just adds dimension to Even the crappy movie, you can just you, you perk up a little, oh, it's Tommy Lee Jones. I watched yeah. him for five now minutes. he's good. And, you, you know, I... I yeah. lo- I like him a lot. My favorite thing he ever did was actually Canada Tin Roof mm-hmm. with Jessica Lange and and uh, Rip Torn in like 1984. And you can get that on DVD and it's really worth seeing. It's yeah. like the best version of that play I've ever seen. Um, it kind of wrecked that play for me. I saw it in London with uh, Sienna Miller, who was actually very good. She was better than Jessica Lange. Mm-hmm. But I saw it with uh, Calmini. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very good. Yeah, he's very good, but he wasn't Rip Torn, and and I don't know who the guy was. But anyway, uh, so um, I guess that's this week that we yeah, did this week. Right. So, yeah, okay. and uh, what else we got? Oh, well, last week. Last week we've got. Oh yeah. Um, Dark Phoenix. Yeah, Dark Phoenix. Well, you know this this is very interesting to me because uh, I review these movies, and contrary to you know what people think, what what some people think. I write these reviews, and I don't know what other people are going to say. I mean, sometimes I know, because um, I can look on on Rotten Tomatoes, and they may it may be one of these things that get you know, rev- you know uh, there may be early reviews. But for Dark Phoenix, no, and I assumed that this was going to be considered not only a good movie, but like the best or maybe the second best X Men movie ever made. I thought <laughs> I thought it was really good, and I think that that the reason why I thought it was really good and maybe the reason why a lot of people didn't think thought it was was bad is because it's not like an X-Men movie it's it's and also it's um it's about the dark side of being a superhero which I like because I don't like the idea of su- I don't like superheroes and so maybe just philosophically I'm in accord with it or something but I genuinely thought that everybody would be very impressed with it and this is what the movie's about the movie's about Dark Phoenix, it's, I think her name is Jean Grey, and she was adopted by uh, Xavier, Charles <laughs> Xavier, and she has a, a past that she can't remember, 
a bad past that Charles Xavier actually made sure she can't remember because he has the power to go into people's minds and do all these things. And then something happens that gives her tremendous power, tr more power than anything on earth. And as a result, <coughs> all the, the artificial um, constraints, all the artificial barriers in her mind kind of fall away. And I like that as a kind of metaphor. I like that as a metaphor for the unconscious being unleashed. I liked it as a metaphor for the id being turned loose. And I liked the idea of what do you do with somebody who has tremendous power and is, sev no, not severely, just mentally ill, just mentally ill, probably in a way that they would need six months of therapy and it would straighten them out. But what do you do with them? Because in the, in the intervening six months, they're not going to like stay in bed and cry. They're going to destroy the world. So what do you do with somebody like that? Do you kill them? Do you, you can't, you can't throw a net over them. You can't, you just, I don't know. And, and so the movie, the movie looks at that. So I like that. I also liked, I like Jessica Chastain who's in it because she plays a kind of evil foreign uh, yeah, extraterrestrial entity that takes possession of a woman who looks just like Jessica Chastain. And then, of course, she starts acting very weird. But she starts acting like Jessica Chastain in a lot of movies, even though weird, she's really cold. She starts saying, you know, very calmly saying horrible things. Um, and so I thought she was a blast. I really like Sophie Turner. I just like this movie a lot. But, you know, I think it falls into that bad area, which in the bad area is that if you do something different, you wind up getting in trouble because the audience that likes these kinds of movies won't like the movie because they like they like the superhero. They, that's what they like. And that's fine. They like it. Uh, and the people who don't like superhero movies, I mean, I, I, if I was hearing my explanation, my own expl explanation of Dark Phoenix, I still wouldn't go to it. You know, I, I wouldn't take money out of my pocket to go. Uh, because it's just generically a genre that I just, you know, don't particularly like. But I do think this is one of the good ones, though. Uh, I I think at this this point we know already that it's probably dead and buried. You know, it's interesting because Mick, years ago, was one of the few people who liked Catwoman. And he's been, you know, you know he's just been raked over the coals for this for years and years. I liked it. Yeah, I liked I it, I liked too. it, too. I still, I stand by his review on that because people sit there and I go, I don't care. I saw I said. It's 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 really good. Yeah. I don't know why people hated it so well, much. Well, it's easy to put yourself in a good frame of mind about a movie when it stars the woman who's married to the executive editor. And they were divorced at the time. They were divorced at the time, <laughs> I know. And I did like the movie, and I wound up giving it fact. In fact, the executive editor had me come into his office, and he said something like, I hope you didn't, you know, give her a good review because of me, because that, you know, yeah. that should that does. He wanted a bad review. Not, uh, he wanted. He was very unhappy. He wanted the bad review. I think they were wanted, divorced at the I time. I think he wanted the bad review, but I did. I did like the movie, um, but he didn't care. Yeah, but I, I, mean, I think he just wanted me. To, but you know what I did when when Phil Bronstein was the editor of the mm -hmm. paper, I made sure that I didn't review a single Sharon Stone movie. I did everything I could. I would just happen to take off that night. I would just do it because I didn't want it because there was no way that, because, because this is the thing that I know that other people don't know, is I know what it's like to have your wife get reviewed. 
And very simply, if somebody gives my wife a bad review, I hate their guts forever. Period. Done. Because that's it. You just, you, it's like you messed with my wife. Are you crazy? So how am I supposed to like somebody who does that? So, I mean, that's how I felt like, I know this. I'm not going to mess yeah. with Phil Bronstein's wife. But I, think you, sure. but I think you did that when he was still at the examiner because I know we had a policy at the examiner and the Chronicle that the reviews were not to be done by Chronicle people. And what they used to do is they would pick out of a hat at least at the examiner, <laughs> a random Hearst newspaper, and then use that, oh, that review. Yeah. But I do remember- But at the Chronicle, we reviewed yeah. the, when they were married. We didn't care. But, but then when we merged- well, you, no, no, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But what was interesting is it was after they got divorced, um, uh, one of the critics, she were on vacation. Oh, yeah. Forgot, <laughs> forgot to go- Coincidence? To, Maybe. Forgot <laughs> to go to the screening. And we said to him, you have to review this movie. Yeah, you don't right. understand because you, we will look bad. Yeah. was saying, oh, they didn't go because they're now divorced. And we said, we called up oh, one of the other yeah. publicists, and I said to her, you have to find another screening. And David Wiegand, we brought, he said, I'm going to buy a ticket to L.A. for you to go see this movie if need be. Yeah. This is, and I mean, for him to say that about the Sharon Stone movie, it was really funny. Wow, and well. they did get him a screening in the end, but, but it, it, was sort yeah. of, it was sort of panic-stricken. Well, panic I mean, it, it is, it, you know, marriages are very hermetically mm -hmm. sealed entities that either in the pressure in within that pressure cooker create love or create hatred and if you don't want to get a reputation within the marriage as that jerk so-and-so you want to get a reputation in the marriage as that great guy so-and-so but at the same time I do not want to you know review something and say anything that I don't think is true so I just avoided the issue altogether I really did I avoided I just avoided reviewing her films by the way before that most of her movies I liked and I, I haven't like liked her one. in bad movies for some reason. Yeah, I, I tend to like her, yeah. Uh, but um, just an FYI on Phil Bronstein is he did remarry. They've been happily married for oh, at least 20 years now. I've got uh, two kids, and you know, and uh, they seem to be doing great. Uh, and, I just want to put uh, that in there. <laughs> and I, I, I think he's a great guy. Yeah, I do I really too. Like People him a lot. Okay, um, so the last one, I kind of saved it. It's Caruso? Oh, uh, Pavarotti. Not, not, not Boganzi? Yeah, yeah, yeah Boganzi. <laughs> Carlo Boganzi. You really, you're, you're, you're uh, yeah, that's pretty great, good. great, great tenor. Boganzi, <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah, it's not UC Bjorling either. Yeah, no, it's not Domingo. Um, Cadenas? Yeah, I think, there's, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who, um, who think Pavarotti is, is who, you know, people, like, if you ask them, they'll say Pavarotti's better than Domingo. And then there's the other 50% of the people who are just lying. Because I don't understand how anybody could like Domingo better than, uh, than Pavarotti, pa except, that, except that he's better looking, of course. Pavarotti lost his voice midway through his career. No, Up to that point, he was great. But then if you listen to it, oh, no. he's straining. No. He's absolutely not as great as he could have been. He, and he even admitted he wrecked his voice a he, lot. He really did. Even even with even wrecked his voice. Yeah, was I mean, I, I think Domingo's is more powerful. More, oh, no. oh, I mean, he's a little sloppy on the edges, but I think his voice is just amazing. I, I, Pavarotti is 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 just the 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 the, the, the voice of God. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Anyway, so, so the Bruganzi. movie. Yeah, <laughs> Gonzi was good. I, you know what? Who's the guy I like? You see Bjorli. You see you see you see Bjorli. I like the the, the other. The, the two tenors I like the best are, are Pavarotti, and I do like Giuseppe Di Stefano, who made all those recordings I, I, with Callis, who uh, just had a rich kind of manly yeah, sort of voice. Carreras also had a great voice, and he lost it too, but you, you could hear some Carreras. things. When he was early in his career, you could hear it, you go, but he got very sick. 
and it affected his health. And of course, that, yeah. the singer, but that's he was a real, still an good, opera though, singer yeah. especially, yeah. it was good, but he just, again, uh, you could hear the strength. People thought, Octavio Roca said that he thought that Carreras had it in him to be the next Giuseppe Di Sefno, but then his voice changed a little bit. But he was still good, though. He, he was still, still good, he but was still it wasn't as great, great as he yeah. could have been. I mean, well, if anyway, you ever he heard, lived, uh, which is yeah, better. Yeah. Which is, which anyway, is Pavarotti, it's a pretty just straight-up documentary, birth-to-death thing with career greatest hits, but it's interesting, and it's interesting thing to see, you know, if you're, I mean, if you're, if you're like a writer or if you're, a painter or something to some degree you are your talent um to some degree uh but if you're a singer it's almost like you're standing alongside it and you have this incredible thing so he just seems like a regular person who's having this extraordinary life as a result of having this insane talent you know insane gift that's been given to him and it's a little bit about the strain of of this you know being this guy uh I liked it. If you like Pavarotti, it's good. And if you think you might like Pavarotti, it's good. I think the only people who might not like the movie, this is by Ron Howard, by the way, are people who are so familiar with Pavarotti that it's just not going to be, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's like old news. Um, but it, it, to me, it's good. I think it's coming at a good time. He's been dead now for 12 years. 12 years. He died. Yeah, I was in Rovinia when he died and they were playing his records all over the place. Where is Rovinia, by the way? In Italy. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I asked. <laughs> Actually, you had been right if 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 you answered like seventy years ago. So it used to be it's in Istria, which Italy lost. I'm not sure at what point. And, and, they, and are Istria, they members of the United Nations? Yeah, Istria's part. <laughs> Istria is part of Croatia. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Croatia. But oh. but I I said Ravinia, and Ravinia is in 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 Istria. They speak uh, I guess Serbo-Croatian and Italian, mm-hmm. so you can get by in it with Italian in in uh, Istria. It's all these little travel tips. You know, you come for the movies, you stay for the culture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, do you have? Did, do we, I, I have some uh, columns have the, coming up. Is there anything in there? I just want to add one more tenor to oh, yeah. the list. Oh, yeah, who, who I adore, but he couldn't act worth the time. He could sing like a magician, Nikolai Geta. Yeah, he's and, right. But the thing is, that's the thing is, is, Domingo could do all those roles. Neither Getter nor Pavarotti could do all those roles. Yeah, Pavarotti could he could sing them though. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, he sounded better. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. So uh, and, and okay, then, was, uh, if you ever see Eugene so, Onegin with Getter, you just why don't you pick floor. a letter out that you find okay. interesting that we that we could just discuss for a brief okay. thing that's coming up right, from Ask Mick uh, Dear Mick, I'm not sure what planet you inhabited in the '70s. But on the one I lived in, parentheses, a suburban SoCal high school graduated in 74, parentheses, it was not generally assumed that Elton John was gay. As a very closeted gay teen, I would have loved such a role model, but it literally never occurred to me to, or to anyone I knew. Bruce Merkin, San Francisco. Yeah. I, well, that was I, – I, that's not the only email I got like this. And I was immediately saying, what is going on? Because – and I – and um, I called uh, my best friend from high school, still best friend now, really. And I said, okay, we, everybody knew Elton John was gay, right? I mean, I'm not remembering this wrong. And he said, no, absolutely everybody knew. Everybody knew. It was understood. It wasn't like it was, it was a, it, it wasn't like a public thing. It was, it was a publicly understood thing that he wasn't talking about. But the thing is, he wasn't concealing it either. I went back and I looked at some interview. I was looking at just Elton John stuff because a rocket man, I got interested in the actual Elton John. So, for example, I was watching an interview uh, with Elton John from 1974, from March of 1974. And he's talking to the talk show host and he says to the guy, um, 
he says, yeah, well, I kissed you backstage. You know, I don't know if the audience wants to know about that. And so he's talking about he kissed the guy backstage or in this. And then I was watching. This is just the two things I watched. 1976 concert. And somebody yells out as he's performing. Um, somebody yells out, where's Kiki D? And he says, uh, Kiki couldn't be here. She's, she's with a man right now. And let's face it, it's not Freddie Mercury. And then he starts playing. So... I, I mean, these, he was always saying little things like that that would just indicate that he was gay. And also, too, the thing that everybody forgets, and I was talking about this the other day, is that um, it was kind of cool in the 70s before AIDS. That was a backlash. That was the 80s. But it was kind of cool to be, kinda, to be bisexual, for sure. And, um, I mean, nobody remembers this stuff now. So it wasn't like the idea of Elton John being gay was not like, oh, he has to be so scared to mention that he's gay or that anybody thought about it one way or the other. Uh, they, they didn't think of it as a good thing or a bad thing. It was just like a thing. It was just like assumed. Um, but I mean, you know, I went to see the Rolling Stones in 1975 and Mick Jagger was dancing with an inflated 10 foot penis. And it was just like, a, it was, it was like in the air. It yeah, wasn't like a big deal. Is, is, it's a slight difference just because you think Rock Hudson, everybody knew was gay, even though he, it was never out except, except for the people like, you know, the people who were the Hollywood, you know, the fans. Yeah, the women wanted to marry him. The same as Liberace. Yeah, okay. And, but, and then okay. the same as Roy Cohn. Okay. Difference is that the, you're talking about another generation. And and Rock Hudson's fans were of a generation that might have cared. But we were of a generation that couldn't care less. I mean, it wasn't like we liked him because he was gay. And it wasn't like... We, it was just like we just assumed he was gay and we liked him. It wasn't... It wasn't, um, it wasn't an issue. It was just a characteristic, like the fact that he had blonde hair. I think was an issue. I mean, knowing really? what I do so growing amazing. up is I say, yes, when I went to college, and I was in college in 1974, we didn't care. But if you went outside of college, and you still were still learning. Like, I remember some people who were in my dorms, and they were gay, and it took me like two years before I figured it out. You know, things like well, that. You, you and, and was, there was an acceptance yeah. to it, but there wasn't a, oh, he's gay. It was like, it was sort of a surprise when you found this out at that it, point. Well, I'll just tell you, I grew up in New York City, which sounds like something, but I didn't grow up in New York City. I grew up in Staten Island. <laughs> in Staten Island, I mean, they still sell MAGA hats there, and and they don't and they don't sell them ironically. Uh, so this is not the most you know socially um, sophisticated or observant or tolerant part of the United States, and it's certainly well, it's not not like that now and it certainly wasn't like that in 1974 anyway we've overstayed our welcome <laughs> and so uh let's uh wrap this up Liba. um i guess we'll come back in another couple of weeks yeah, huh yeah i think we can for another thrilling and exciting uh, dramatic reading and uh, anyway thank you everybody for listening and come back and for the san francisco chronicle i am mick lasalle and i am Liba hertz You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks to Mick LaSalle and Liba Hertz. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Midnight Special by Ease Jammy Jams. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.